This is 15 Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and anyone interested in history, featuring the minds and voices of the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to 15 Minute History. I'm your host, Alina Scott, a doctoral candidate in the Department of History at UT Austin. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Professor Kyle Mays. Professor Mays, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Kyle Mays is an Afro-Indigenous Saginaw Chippewa writer and scholar of U.S. history, urban studies, race relations, and contemporary popular culture. He is an assistant professor of African-American studies, American Indian studies, and history at the University of California, Los Angeles. He is the author of Hip Hop Beats, Indigenous Rhymes, Modernity and Hip Hop in Indigenous North America, as well as the new book, An Afro-Indigenous History of the United States, published in November 2021 with Beacon Press. And I want to jump right into the questions because I've been following your work for a while and I'm super excited about this new project. Um, But you say in your introduction of your new book that you've been writing this book your whole life. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah. So as you mentioned, um, African-American Saginaw Chippewa, um, just briefly, brief introduction. My great-grandmother came from the Saginaw Chippewa Reservation, the Isabella Reservation. It's called formally to Detroit in 1940. And then she married an African-American man, and they had nine Afro-Indigenous children. And then I'm a product of that sort of lineage. So when I was a child, within our family wasn't a big, wasn't really a big deal. And it's not really until, um, there's really two instances that, what I mean by that, when I've been writing this my whole life. So my older brother uh, used to powwow and be in, in, and sing in the powwow circuit throughout Michigan. And he had a book called Black Indians by William Warren Katz, who has just passed away in October of last year. But I was able to meet him right before he passed in, in New York uh, a couple, three years ago now. But so I saw this pile of books and I was like, I never really seen this in literature growing up. And I had certainly heard about the five tribes, no shade of the five tribes, but that dominates discourse and discussion about who is, as we used to say back in the day, a Black Indian. And so I was like, well, I wish I could read more about myself or see myself in some capacity. And really, and the other thing was, uh, when I was looking at prospective graduate students, a very infamous uh, Black Studies professor, when he asked me what I wanted to do. Uh, I said, I'm looking, I'm interested in looking at the relationship between the American Indian movement and the Black Panther Party, issues around masculinity, ideology, et cetera. And stoned face and confident, he said, there is no relationship between the Black Panther Party and the American Indian movement. Now, I was struck by that because it's just not true. I mean, I had photos. I had done a little bit of research as an undergrad. So I knew, like, this dude was lying. And so um, it, it got me like thinking more and more, I really need to write this sort of book, not only as a reflection of my identity, but also exploring these issues as they relate to capitalism and colonialism, right? Like what, how can we talk about these things, one, outside of the five tribes in the 19th century and enslavement, but also thinking about the relationship between colonialism, white supremacy, and capitalism in a particular way. And thus, uh, I've been fortunate enough to write this book with the fantastic people at Beacon Press. 
So I want to jump right into what you just mentioned, which is this kind of new way of thinking about Afro-Indigenous history beyond the 19th century. So one of the key goals of this book does seem to be just that, to expand these conversations about Afro-Indigeneity and the intersections of Blackness and Indigeneity beyond enslavement. Though you do cover enslavement in this new book, but for those not familiar with what you mean, can you elaborate a little bit more about what this expanded Afro-Indigenous methodology might look like? So uh, a few questions that I'm interested in exploring. Uh, and so a fancy word for indigeneity. For me, often when, well, when people mention indigeneity, they're often talking about land or how Native nations in the U.S. and also beyond the U.S., of course, globally, uh, the relation to land. Are they the first peoples, first nations, the people who encountered uh, European settlers, right? And so for me, in order to bring in people of African descent and even people on the African continent and the Americas as well into discussions of indigeneity. Like land can't only be the thing that defines what it means to be indigenous. Again, land is fundamental, but it's a fundamental, not the fundamental. Uh, And as a result, I'm trying to expand this idea of indigeneity being about culture, spiritual practices, cosmologies, etc. And that's not to replace, of course, uh, the indigenous peoples of North America. But if we consider the people of African descent, that they didn't just lose what it means to be indigenous, right? They continued, whether we want to look at something like Black English or Ave as it's used uh, on social media, uh, also called Ebonics back in the day, as a combination of West African language and um, English in a certain way, Patois in the Americas, throughout, throughout the Americas as well, in Jamaica in particular. Uh, If we consider those things as forms of indigenous cultural practices and, um, as Fanon would tell us, a sort of way of thinking, France Fanon that is, then we have to deal with the question of when did these people of African descent lose their indigeneity? And my whole point is to say, well, they didn't on the one hand, right? I mean, Cedric Robinson and Black Marxism told us that they brought all these cosmologies, cultures, histories, and ideas with them. And so... For me, I'm trying to expand the very notion and idea of what indigeneity can be as an intellectual practice, as well as a practice on the ground of what people are doing in their everyday lives. Kind of on that topic, the first couple chapters of your book start before the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... I want to talk about some of the key figures that you bring up in the pre-revolutionary period. So like Equiano, Phyllis Wheatley, and Paul Cuffey, can you talk a little bit about their stories and what they tell us about Blackness and indigeneity and Black and Indigenous history? Yeah. So, you know, we learn about Paul Cuffey, Phyllis Wheatley, and Equiano uh, throughout Black History Month as Black. And what I'm trying to do in, in this particular book is going back to what I was just discussing is, well, these are indigenous peoples who have been kidnapped uh, on the one hand, at least Equiano and Phyllis Wheatley, right? So we know how Phyllis Wheatley, really the first black person to uh, publish poetry, was so important that in Jefferson's, uh, Thomas Jefferson's notes in the state of Virginia, he's trying to throw shade at Phyllis Wheatley about that she was unable to write such fantastic poetry. This seems to be an ongoing thing in U.S. history and in the contemporary, that Black women can't do very fantastic things. We won't get into that right now. But so Wheatley being an important person, kidnapped as a, as a, I think she arrived in the Americas around six or seven years old, at least what we know of. 
and her engagement with um, a particular uh, minister, Sam Oakham, a Mohegan minister who was, uh, they had corresponded. And in the correspondence, very brief, about two or three times, but they tried to discuss like some of the relationships between what uh, people of African descent were experiencing, or Africans at the time, and uh, Native peoples, Mohegan peoples, uh, within as the U.S. nation state is in its early development, right? And so, uh, Equiano being an important person, one of the first uh, narratives, uh, at least written by or told by an enslaved person. There's a bit of controversy about whether it existed. For me, that's less important than it is that. This story was out there, and there are a lot of verifiable facts, even by Igbo people who say, like, no, a lot of these things are, are pretty accurate. And Equiano telling the horrors of the Middle Passage or the slave trade, right? And also still identifying very clearly his indigenous life before uh, he was kidnapped. And to me, that's a very valuable thing as it relates to pre-revolutionary America. And finally, Paul Cuffey. So he was a product of an Afro-Indigenous relationship, like one of the early first ones, if you will. Uh, and typically he's considered Black in a certain way, but he's Wampanoag. And his father was kidnapped and enslaved and brought to the Americas around, I think, six or seven as well. But he was a product of this Afro-African and North American, we'll say, Indigenous relationship. And he tried to form a town that was just for Black and Native folks. He ended up marrying a, a Wampanoag woman, and he tried to also found a all-black town in Sierra Leone. It was unsuccessful, but he was very well documented within the British press as well as a, as a seafarer. So for me, collectively, what they tell you is that these are Afro-Indigenous peoples trying to uh, come to terms with a developing American uh, society and also dealing with the ongoing nature of white supremacy at the time, like through deeply discussing their identity. So that's why I really began with those particular stories in the book. I think those stories were incredibly impactful for me, and I'm sure they will be for our listeners who are maybe not necessarily used to thinking about these particular figures in those contexts. And and one final thing, I'm sorry. The other final important thing about that is that these are encounters between indigenous peoples, right? We so easily erase that these people were indigenous. That is the uh, people coming from the African continent. And so what would it mean for us to say, these aren't just African peoples or enslaved peoples. These are actually indigenous peoples encountering other indigenous peoples. And so I'm trying to push us to think, what does that mean? Absolutely. I think thinking about this indigeneity beyond the context of mixedness and indigeneity that is inherently Black. And I really appreciated that that moment in that chapter. My next question is about the 20th century. Um, and so I want to talk about the civil rights era and the intersection of Black and Indigenous political struggles and goals in this context. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So I want to begin with Vine Deloria Jr., the um, San York Sioux, important giant intellectual. And so in Custer Die for Your Sin, which came out in 1969, he has this very uh, famous chapter called The Black and the Red, and wherein he discusses the key differences between Black and Native activism. 
And so in the chapter, he basically says that, and this persists well into the present. I, I've heard this probably a hundred times whenever I'm giving a talk, that black people are fighting for civil rights and native people are fighting for treaty rights. Now, of course, treaty rights are a foundational difference between that native people have over other people within the U.S. Uh, you also hear people say weird things that we are nations and not a race. And I'm like, how can you therefore have like Indians and you're erasing whiteness? It's a whole nother discussion. Uh, and so Deloria, and so I think a host of generations thereafter have reproduced what I call looking at these black and native relationships through the lens of Deloria. That is focusing only on the key differences, but that flattens a lot of black radicals in history who wanted to question also the legitimacy of the U.S. nation as a place where they can be citizens, right? And so uh, for me, what I tried to show you, of course there were differences, but there were also folks like Sokun Carmichael, who had changed his name to Kwame Ture, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, uh, influenced by Kwame Nkrumah, and they're trying to find common ground with Native peoples. And so in a very important speech that Stokely Carmichael gave uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota in 1975, he says that this is actually Native people's land. This is not my land. This is not Black people's land. And so if we're going to wage a struggle and be in solidarity with them, we have to center Native people's land, right? And for me, that's a very important point in U.S. history when you have prominent Black activists articulating this particular point. And he continued this notion well into the 1990s. And so for that reason, Kwame Ture becomes an important ally in its relationship to indigenous struggles in a way that a large majority of Black activists were not. And again, while they may have questioned the legitimacy of uh, the U.S. as a settler democracy, none of them, maybe they thought you know, this country should be destroyed in a particular way or transformed, but none of them really were like, well, this is Native people's land, right? And I think that is a crucial thing and why we should, you know, focus on even those um, abnormalities within Black politics and Black struggle. So because your book covers several centuries of history, taking us from the revolutionary period to the civil rights era and ending in the present moment, how do you hope this work contributes to conversations about Black and Indigenous solidarities throughout U.S. history? Well, I want to have an honest conversation around like history, right? And so, you know, Audre Lorde and Learning from the 60s, an essay, uh, says that anything worth doing, I'm paraphrasing, anything worth doing is around solidarity should be difficult and hard. I think too often, um, even in recent, in the last several years around in protests for Black life, Black humanity, protests against pipelines, we assume solidarity. And I don't think we should assume solidarity between any two oppressed groups. That doesn't make sense. That's bad politics in general, right? What are you struggling for? Uh, what are the conditions you, you might face in, in a particular way? And then how do you come together around particular issues, and I think is a better approach. And so my hope is to look at, all right, Native people have perpetuated anti-Blackness. Let's not skirt that over. Black people have erased often within their own struggles, Native peoples. But how do they find a common ground? And what I've tried to tease out is they 
Activists wanted a future free of white supremacy and settler colonialism, right? In the fantastic documentary about Nina Simone, someone asked her, what is freedom mean? And she said, no fear, right? And so for me, if we truly want some sort of freedom, we have to begin planning in the aftermath of colonialism and white supremacy. I'm, I'm tired of living in the afterlife of, of enslavement and the ongoing forms of settler colonialism, but how can we project and start thinking about the aftermath and building these societies that we want, right? An indigenous and black future that exists without the burdens of racism and colonialism uh, and capitalism. And so for me, I want to start engaging that conversation uh, with other like-minded peoples. And so you begin with history, and then we have to project well into the present and the future. So my final question is, and to close this episode, are there any stories in particular that you came across that you were surprised by or that you think would surprise our listeners? I think the one story is probably Frederick Douglass. So he gives a speech, I believe, in um, 1878, 1879. And he's talking to a group of Native folks, uh, ironically, and he's saying you can't be weak and you have, you have to be strong. And it's just kind of like, I mean, you know, great-grandpa Frederick Douglass, he doesn't love Frederick Douglass, right? But you see this sort of sentiments around anti-Nativeness in a sense trying to construct uh, like a Black citizenship, humanity. But then you're using the so-called weakness or engaging these sharps of the vanishing Indian to perform this notion of a black future within a U.S. democracy. Right? And I, I, I get it. I, I totally get it. But that ain't the way to do it. And I guess the other one is the Republic of New Africa, like founded in Detroit in May of 1968. And the five, you know, southern states that they're like, the U.S. owes us this, and they owe us $500 billion. And the discourse around reparations that consists today. Do we want reparations under capitalism? One. And how can we have discussions of reparations without engaging in returning land to Native peoples? And I'm curious to know, and I'm not talking about the Hotep breed, but I'm curious to know, like, how this is going to play out and and why can't we engage these questions simultaneously? Well, thank you so much, Professor Mays, for coming on the podcast and for talking with me today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. We will also have more information on our website, 15minutehistory.org. And if you haven't already, make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 15 Minute History and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That's it for the show. Stay tuned for more episodes of 15 Minute History coming all semester long. Fifteen-minute history is produced at the University of Texas at Austin in partnership with Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media and visit our website for more information and resources. See y'all next week.